Welcome to the IAOMS podcast series, where we gather for unique conversations about advancing the specialty. This season, we're analyzing innovation adaptations with master surgeons around the world. In this first episode, we'll be exploring orthognathic surgery from wires to plates to virtual. Our moderator is Dr. Salam Salman, with special guests, Dr. Joseph Van Sickles and Dr. Andrew Heggie. Thank you for tuning in. We hope you enjoy the session. Welcome to the IAOMS podcast series, Innovation Adaptations with Master Surgeons Across the World. Um, today, our topic is going to be on orthognathic surgery, from wires to plates to virtual. Um, we're eager to share your stories with our e-learning community. Um, we have two special guests today, uh, Dr. Joseph Van Sickles, who joins us from Kentucky uh, in the USA, and Dr. Andrew Heggie, who joins us from Melbourne, Australia. Um, and we'd like to share their perspectives on the evolution of orthognathic surgery over their illustrious careers. Uh, I want to start off with having the, the speakers or the guests introduce themselves. So we'll start with Dr. Heggie from Australia. Thank you, Salam. Um, I'm delighted to uh, be participating in this podcast. Uh, I'm uh, still uh, uh, actively in practice, which is shared between a private practice uh, with uh, a focus on uh, orthognathic surgery. Um, I also work in the cleft and craniofacial environment at the Royal Children's Hospital of Melbourne, uh, where I'm now a senior surgeon. I was head of our unit for uh, 25 years. So uh, I would say I'm in the twilight of my career now and uh, looking forward to sharing our uh, experience. All right. Well, thank you for joining us. Uh, and then we also have Dr. Joseph Van Sickles from Lexington, Kentucky. Thank you, Salam. I like Dr. Hagee. I've, uh, I guess I've been around the block a few times. Uh, I, uh, been in a number of different uh, educational institutions, uh, most recently in uh, San Antonio, Texas, uh, where I was there for about 16 years. And then currently, I am the program director at the University of uh, Kentucky, um, and with who the chair or head of our uh, uh, division is uh, Dr. Melvin Yo. I, like Dr. Hagee, and am in active practice. Uh, actually, I was in the operating room about an hour ago. Uh, uh, and uh, um, actively involved in uh, treating patients with uh, dental facial deformities. And, um, and then uh, as, my, as the program director involved in uh, teaching residents. With that... Uh, I'll sum it up and look forward to your next question. Thank you, Dr. Van Sickles. Thank you both for your very humble introductions. Um, I'm going to start off by asking Dr. Hagee a question, um, and then we'll have Dr. Van Sickles follow with his answer to it. <coughs> How did you first learn orthognathic surgery techniques, and who are your teachers and mentors? Well, my first exposure was uh, to orthognathic surgery was in 1975. Um, as a dental student, I assisted Bob Cook, a former president of the International Association 
who was uh, a pioneer in orthognathic surgery, as he'd been to Zurich and uh, spent some time with Obergazer back in the mid-1960s. And uh, as, a, as a student, to see what he was actually doing to someone's jaw and face, it was just an extraordinary experience. Uh, of course, at that time, the technique of cutting the mandible was quite different. It was a, a lateral, horizontal cut rather than the more forward Dal Pont uh, modification. And many of the patients didn't have orthodontic appliances. Uh, some of them had silver uh, cast splints looted to the teeth with black copper cement and uh, uh, to, to, to reposition the jaw. So Bob Cook was my mentor in Melbourne when I went straight from uh, dental school into uh, oral surgery training, as it was then. And maxillary and, uh, and bimaxillary procedures were, were gaining popularity, but there were still very few done. Uh, I remember uh, one patient who had had a bimaxillary procedure at one of our public hospitals, and everyone was standing around wondering when to take the tube out on day three with the patient just begging to have it removed because we were frightened of, uh, of, of the edema going inwards rather than outwards. I then went to uh, uh, Seattle for a fellowship with Roger West, who had been at the uh, Parkland Training Centre, uh, and that's when I really learned the power of combining orthodontics with orthognathic surgery for what I regarded as just first-class occlusions and, and good facial balance. I was exposed at the University of Washington to other surgeons such as Dale Bloomquist and Tom Hall at the University of Washington, and, and, and this was all uh, very broadening for experience in this area. Of course, at that time, cases were generally treated with IMF and uh, wire fixation, whether the wires were placed in the upper or lower border, and it allowed some freedom of the proximal fragments to find their best position. And one just hoped the occlusion would be good when you released the IMF, whether that was anywhere between four and six weeks. But on return to practice in Australia in 1983, uh, I introduced and implemented as much as I could from uh, what I had learned, uh, particularly around a precise occlusion and uh, the tracings of the facial profile. Um, at that stage, of course, many of the orthodontists were suspicious of orthognathic surgery, seeing it as some sort of failure of their orthodontic compensation, and uh, it took a lot of persuasion to uh, uh, get them to refer the patients. But the, young, the younger orthodontists could see that it actually made their work easier uh, with better results, both facially and occlusally. So uh, that's pretty much my uh, beginning of uh, the area. That I'm still in. All right. Well, thank you very much for that. Dr. Van Sickles, the same question about how you learned your orthognathic techniques and who are your teachers and mentors? Very similar uh, uh, to Dr. Hagee. Um, we started about the same time. I, I finished dental school in 72, uh, in 1972, and uh, did what would be called uh, a uh, Preliminary years, two years of general practice residency. I'd always kind of, I was fascinated by the area of uh, orthognathic surgery. 
and kind of thought that that's what I would do. My residency started uh, in um, 1974 um, under the tutelage of S. Elmer Bear. Um, uh, I had a number of faculty members. Uh, uh, Ray White was Raymond White was one of my faculty of uh, Bell Prophet and White, uh, Bob Campbell, John Alexander, just to name a few. Um, we did a lot of segmental procedures, but we also did uh, sagittal split osteotomies, and we were literally just starting to do the Fort ones, um, like Doctor Hagee, uh, uh, where our patients were wired together. Segments were wired together and patients were placed in intermaxillary fixation. We did a lot of, uh, as, as he also said, a lot of uh, non-orthodontic uh, surgical procedures. Uh, in fact, we, we did work with our orthodontic department uh, and we would do maybe one or two cases from our, from our orthodontist. I had a little bit of a... Um, Oh, uh, advantage, uh, if you will, in that my year, uh, I can talk about that a little bit later on. My year was the first of the four-year trained residents. Uh, and so I got to spend an extra year as a chief resident. So I got more <coughs> surgery from my uh, um, general trauma, et cetera, background, and certainly more experience with orthognathic surgery. So I'm going to follow up with that. I think you're about to start speaking about rigid fixation and semi-rigid fixation um, in orthognathic surgery. And when you started implementing that, how you learned that, and what was the biggest challenge to making that transition? You want me to continue on and then Dr. Hagee? Yeah, for sure. Okay. Thank you. So it was uh, sort of serendipitous um, because was one of the uh, first of the four-year residents. Uh, Dr. Bear um, talked to us, uh, and the, the three of us, it was Jim Wallace and Robbie Morris, and asked us, uh, would we like to study abroad? But we had to pick one place. And we picked Queen Mary's Roehampton because uh, Mr. Rowe was there, and Rowe and Keeley's textbook on facial trauma was one of the uh, premier textbooks at the time. And so we decided to go to Roehampton. Uh, and and literally, I was um, operating in the middle of the uh, night or early evening with uh, a registrar of the program, Brian Avery. Brian uh, uh, went on to be a, a consultant himself and um, literally later on the president of the British Society uh, but uh, while we, he and I were treating a zygoma one evening, uh, uh, a, another American spoke up and said, uh, why are you treating it that way? And uh turned out it was Tom Jeter, and he and I became quite good friends. Tom was doing his selectives in medical school at some time, and Queen Mary's Roehampton was one of them. He went on to go to Erlangen, Germany. It was not until... Uh, uh, a year later, we met up, and Tom had said he'd watched the Germans used, uh, and that was Emil Steinhauser's unit in Erlangen, uh, use uh, rigid fixation, but they were doing it 
with too big a screws. We had to do it differently. We were going to do it with um, two millimeter screws. I can tell you, it was exciting. Uh, the idea of doing jaw surgery without wiring people together. And uh, it actually, I ended up in San Antonio and Tom was part-time faculty. Uh, and uh, we operated literally that December of 1982, 83. Um, I actually just checked my CV. My first paper was written on, on rigid fixation with two millimeter screws in 84. And that was nine patients with over six months uh, uh, follow-up. So we were doing a fair number of them. I remember the the issues that uh, we had. Uh, um, we didn't have the in correct instruments, so we developed some of our own. Literally, I still use the Jeter Van Sickles clamp today. Um, Tom deserves the credit as he was the one who developed it. Uh, and uh, our challenges at the time were, one, the equipment, and two, the profession. Uh, essentially, we took an operation and made it more difficult. In the old days, you wired segments together, you wire the patient together, and basically... Like uh, Dr. Hagee said, you kept them in the ICU overnight and you sometimes kept them in the hospital for a couple of days. Uh, we were putting screws in the patient's jaws and checking the occlusion. And if it wasn't right, redoing it. Uh, and then um, oftentimes discharging the patients the following day. Uh, and uh, there was pushback from uh, this is the profession from one, what you were doing to segments that you're using rigid fixation. And two, there was pushback that it wasn't doing the same way as the Germans were doing it. Uh, therefore, it must be wrong. Uh, and uh, perhaps those early studies of mine were done as much to uh, show that we were getting reasonable results. I will say that patients, the biggest change I noticed right away was that patients loved the idea of not being wired together. Literally 20, 30 years later, I've got patients who would ask me, are you going to wire my jaws together? And the answer was no. I didn't we didn't realize at the time just how uh, much of an impact that had on them. Yeah, no, I agree. I think that that's a very big historic deterrent. And I still have patients to this day that are surprised when I tell them that they will not be wired shut for six weeks. So that's, I think, a, a huge turning point in the field of orthognathic surgery. Um, Dr. Heggie, I'll ask you the same question. Um, when did you start implementing fixation? Um, what was the biggest challenge for you? And how did you go about changing that in Australia? Yes, well, it was uh, uh, the, the very early little beginnings that uh, came to mind when I was casting back my thoughts uh, uh, during my um, fellowship in Seattle. Uh, uh, I worked with Dale Bloomquist, who was putting a bicortical position screw in the lower border of the mandible uh, around 1982, 83 uh, time. So he, he was literally putting his toe in the water, but he was still pretty much using IMF at that time. But I thought this is interesting, a nice big screw rather than uh, uh, wire. 
we were also using some lag screws in, in uh, mandibular trauma. And uh, I then uh, uh, discovered, much to my surprise, this uh, Chompy mini plate from Maxime Chompy um, from, from Europe, which uh, appeared on some of the sets. And uh, the Chompy the screws were being used in trauma uh, at the Harbourview Medical Centre in Seattle. And when I returned to Australia, I, I got one of these sets and started putting it, uh, putting the mini plates in to stabilise the maxilla. But but I was still too nervous uh, to rely on screws or the Chompy plates for fixation in the mandible to control the occlusion. But eventually, uh, we did a series of mandibular osteotomies and bimaxillary cases um, uh, with purely rigid fixation uh, uh, in the early 1990s, at that time, we were using three bicortical ramus screws and relatively light elastics, but at no, no IMF. Now, I found this a particularly stressful period, as did my colleagues who were doing it, because we would release the IMF after placing a fixation on the, and on the proximal fragments to find a malocclusion and the need to replate. Uh, but we were not sure why the occlusion wasn't correct uh, when the condyles were apparently seated. And worse still, an apparently good occlusion that we achieved on the table was occasionally seen to be troublingly wayward on the first or second post-operative day in the ward, uh, with everyone wandering around, one wringing their hands. And uh, it wasn't clear whether it was due to condylate change, muscle action, posturing, pain, uh, but when the man when the occlusion was manifestly wrong, we simply had to take the patient back to theatre and the OR and play around with plate position to re-establish the right occlusion. Um, in other words, I guess one had to be very precise with the rigid fixation. This was uh, uh, a revelation at the time. There was no wiggle room and, and many patients required adjustments until our understanding of Condylar behaviour grew and the ability to control jaw position with strategic rubber bands. Um, this, this took a few years and a lot of discussion. There, there was hope that much of the mandibular relapse that we had been seeing, uh, seeing would be solved with uh, semi-rigid fixation. And I certainly think this was true for early relapse and like Joe, um, who made a major contribution to the literature in this regard, uh, we published a few of my series in a few papers uh, in the 1990s on stability issues, uh, which uh, showed that it really was a superior technique. The need for close scrutiny of the occlusion and management in the first three weeks uh, became paramount and uh, it still is when we when we lose control of a patient for two or three weeks. Uh, sometimes you've got a malocclusion that's that's healed, and uh, we have to uh, drum this into our trainees. But uh, it, uh, when I think back on it, it was a stressful period, but it was a major step forward. I still have patients who say, "You're going to wire my jaws together," yeah. and I think, "Where did you see that?" Yeah. And it's on the it's on the social media blogs from somewhere, and you have to disabuse them of, you know, that particular idea. 
that's interesting. Yeah. Well, thank you for your insight on that, Dr. Hagee. Um, I'm going to ask Dr. Van Sickles uh, a question about computer-based or virtual surgical planning. Um, as on a personal note, I've very fond memories of spending weekends in the lab with Dr. Van Sickles uh, <laughs> doing model surgery, uh, melting hot wax all over his hands, um, and him not reacting whatsoever because I was probably the <laughs> resident to do that to him. Um, but you know, those days have changed, and the age of virtual surgical planning, computer based modeling, patient specific implants is upon us. Um, so how has that changed or altered your approach to orthognathic surgery? Markedly. I would say this is uh, computer-based uh, planning. This was another, uh, if you will, sentinel event uh, in, in uh, uh, orthognathic surgery. And it's really changed uh, how we do things. Uh, now, did I accept it right away? Absolutely not. Uh, I remember, certainly I was aware of it through the work of uh, Jamie Gaetano. And I, I mean, I heard Jamie talk, but I mean, I, I often think that Jamie is really a math major masquerading as, as a surgeon because he would talk about all this Euclidean geometry and he would go all the, go over all this. And I just thought, I can't do that. Um, and it wasn't until uh, 2000, January of 2013 that I, I was involved in a, uh, a very small course uh, that uh, Andy Christensen had, had put on and with uh, Steve uh, Sachs and uh, Stephanie Drew, et cetera. And we saw that you could use a biomedical engineer. And, and, and during the course of a day, I saw them present cases and show the three-dimensional ability. And I thought, there's no way I'm going back. As, as fond as I was about getting burned with hot, sticky wax <laughs> on a Saturday in the lab uh, with you and many other residents, I just thought, there's no way we can do this as accurate. Um, you actually saw what you did. One of the biggest AP to dimensional changes was not an issue uh, with orthognathic surgery, uh, with uh, models and face bows and, and centric relation. It was the lateral shifts, the the asymmetries. You never could be sure when you move those models around, were you going to totally correct the asymmetry? Um, now you can. Um, and it, it, it's, uh, you know, to me, and the idea is, you know, I would spend many a Saturday cutting up models and then calling the orthodontist, taking pictures or driving to the orthodontist office. Here, you can, you can get on the line with the orthodontist uh, and they can go, they can see the session with you. Uh, I mean, it's just night and day. Um, and not to mention the accuracy of uh, an ITERA scanner and, you know, accurate within a micron. I just can't even imagine going back to uh, alginate and stone models. Uh, you mentioned the custom plates. I actually think the, the custom plates in the maxilla, I've not used them in the mandible, nor for the chin. I've used cutting guides for the chin, 
but um, and and positioning appliances for the chin, but the custom plates for the maxilla are just another continuation of that trend. Um, they're easier and they're faster to use. And while there's not any data out there to support it, I think that fixation construct is an orthopedic term, the, the way you fix your segments, uh, that fixation construct running from one side of the maxilla to the other is ultimately going to be more stable for our maxillary osteotomies, especially for our segmental osteotomies. I can't tell you uh, when, how many times on a multiple segment maxilla I have got the teeth in the splint, and then I put that custom plate on the maxilla, and I've watched the segments rotate into their custom place. And I think to myself, how many times did I have relapse? Not because I didn't have the teeth in the splint, but because the segments weren't the way that I wanted them. And that all the that relapse that I was seeing on a, on a multiple segment maxilla was not relapse per se, but merely the segment going back to where its base was. So time's going to tell us, uh, but uh, um, I really, I, I, I just think that uh, it, just as exciting as rigid fixation was, this uh, virtual planning is um, um, another big sentinel event, as I said, a turning point. Um, Dr. Hege, I'll ask you the same the same question about the recent advances we've had in, in this field. Yes, uh, uh, interesting to hear Joe's take on uh, the transition for him because it was very similar for all of us when you have your um, neural patterns wired in a particular way to bend them another way, uh, hoping that uh, you're making an advance, you're naturally, naturally rather cautious. Um, I, I first uh, uh, experimented with a case of uh, virtual surgical planning around 2007 when the materialised software was uh, being hawked around, uh, coming out of the Belgium area and some of the companies. Uh, but I, uh, it was for a difficult asymmetry, but I didn't really adopt the technology for biomaxillary cases as a routine until really only uh, recent years um, because I became persuaded, like Joe, that it improved the accuracy in establishing upper midline cant corrections, uh, assessing asymmetries, and uh, your position, which uh, really you can't see very well and, and control as well with model surgery. So um, I had many conversations with myself about, will I, is this right? Is this the best way to go? And then uh, I became persuaded that it was more accurate. Uh, I have to say for single jaw surgery uh, that just relies on the occlusion, I don't generally use VSP. Um, and uh, I'm still uh, uh, cautious about getting boiling wax on my nail just where the <laughs> skin fold is. Um, for for uh, uh, overall, though, it has revolutionised uh, uh, my orthognathic surgery, and uh, uh, and I've done a large number of cases with custom plates now, and uh, 
I was fascinated to hear Joe say uh, what he did about segmentalization because I've had uh, teeth in the splint and then put the plate on and, you know, it's like three or four millimetres difference and you, you then manipulate the fragments, maybe put one screw above and below and then eventually the plate and the fragments slowly sort of adapt to one another and you realise that this is where, you know, it should be. And uh, that's that's been uh, a fascinating uh, uh, observation. I'm still a little cautious about the cutting guides telling me where to do segmental cuts because they've been inaccurate from time to time, very close to roots. And uh, I'm not sure whether that's just the, uh, uh, the group that I... I use. I've used a number of the companies, um, but uh, I think there's still room for accuracy there. Um, I also do quite a number of zygomatic sandwich osteotomies, an out fracture to uh, uh, enhance cheek prominence, and uh, I've adapted the uh, VSP to this and to determine, you know, how far uh, when you outswing the segments does that how much cheek prominence you get from that. And uh, it's very accurate. Uh, Before, it was really just an eyeballing of of the procedure. Um, The splint accuracy, and I still use the splints for uh, trimming the vertical dimension. Uh, The splint accuracy is amazing from this uh, virtual surgical planning. It's, it's, It's more accurate than when we used to be back there making our own splints. Um, but the custom plates, I think, are a major step forward. And uh, 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 the only comment I would make for the generation of surgeons being trained today is that they do need to know how other techniques can be used to get out of trouble because uh, they rely very heavily on uh, on this new technology. So uh, there are my thoughts, um, the stream of consciousness. No, no, for sure. I definitely agree with you. I think uh, these are all nice tools that we have available to us now, but uh, must never forget where we came from and how to troubleshoot when those do not fit accordingly. Um, I'll follow up with the next question, which is in regards to maxillary or mandibular surgery first and bimax procedures. um, What's your theory? What's your thought process behind it? How do you approach these cases? And um, do you have one standard approach? Is it mandible always first or maxilla always first? And if not, what are your variations? What are the reasons why you would switch the order? Uh, that's to me, Summer. Yeah, yeah we'll, go, we'll go to you first, yeah, Dr. Yeah. Hedden, and then we'll follow up with Dr. Van Sickles. Okay. Well, I was taught uh, uh, maxilla first uh, uh, surgery uh, from, from the outset. That was our approach initially um, and that's how I've continued to the present with the occasional um, exception uh, but I'm well aware of the approach to set the mandible as the initial step. Um, I, I've just never felt the need to change uh, particularly as we uh, have the virtual surgical planning that uh, means you can put the maxilla exactly where you want uh, I know I know my own capacity as to how far I can advance the maxilla, so I keep that in mind uh, when when planning and just set that first and then uh, match the mandible to it. 
the passionate advocates of Mandible First have harassed me as a dinosaur on a number of occasions, um, and I, re I respect their ability to make it work for them. Uh, but I do, I do think that there's a slightly extremist viewpoint, almost a bit evangelical in their advocacy. Uh, there's a bit of a hint of a cult about it. Um, there are undoubtedly some indications for positioning the mandible first, but uh, you know I'm, I'm still sticking to my original teaching. You are you are more than entitled to do that. Um, Dr. Van Sickles, the same question: maxilla mandible first, um, and reasoning behind that that decision or choice. Well, like Dr. Hagee, I I started out doing maxilla first. Now that that that's predicated that you absolutely positively uh, have an accurate centric relationship and that uh, you've got an accurate face bow. And, and in fact, uh, you probably remember me in the labs always checking the mounting uh, on the uh, maxilla and mandible and making sure that it matched the cephalometric radiograph. Um, I actually, you know, and I took every centric and face bow, never had a resident take a centric or a face bow because I, I didn't trust anyone to not to do the, they didn't understand importance. Now, I'm not sure when I made the transition, but I did make a transition to doing mandible first. Um, the, the rationale was that uh, you don't have to worry about how accurate your uh, uh, centric is. So all you have to worry about is how accurate your face bow was. Um, I did certainly go through this period of time where I looked at to see, well, are you going to, is there going to be a large discrepancy uh, between the maxilla and mandible when you set the position of one versus the other? Um, I think, with MMF screws being used, you can get away with that. Uh, you don't have to worry about that. Uh, and certainly the other issue, of course, was whether you're doing a segmental maxilla, uh, do you need a piggyback splint and all? Um, I think of, uh, not only have I gone back, now I've gone back to doing maxilla first because I'm using patient-specific implants. So I've, I've really come whole around the corner, as you say, uh, where I started out doing maxilla first, then I went to doing mandible first or mandible first when you had a uh, large mandibular advancement first, uh, and then uh, or, or segmental osteotomies to get away from doing uh, piggyback splints, to now I'm doing maxilla first on every uh, case because I'm doing patient-specific implants on every case. So, um, I guess, uh, uh, Dr. Hagee, I've, I've, I've kind of, I've gone, I've come back to your position. <laughs> and, and, uh, doc, Dr. Van Sickles, just to kind of clarify on when you use a patient specific implant, um, for the maxilla, you do maxilla first because you're still able to register that to a stable skull base. You're not really relying on the condylar position or mandibular position for your splints? Uh, actually, I do use a splint. Uh, I I, um, I think one of the tenets of trauma, and this is where I, my friend Eddie Ellis, I, I disagree with him. 
Uh, he says you have to absolutely positively be sure that the condyles are in the fossa if you're using a splint. I agree. However, one of the tenets of trauma surgery is you establish the occlusion before you fix the, fix the bones. Uh, I don't think you can hang a maxilla like a chandelier uh, with a patient-specific implant. Uh, I establish occlusion, rotate it up. I look where those interferences are and take care of that and then then put on my uh, patient-specific implant. Um, I, I agree with that. Uh, do I have do I have concerns that my centric may be off? Yes, I check the centric every time. Uh, but uh, um, you know, I check the position of the condyles every time. Do I suspect that the condyles may not have been seated a few times? Possibly. I haven't seen it to be a problem. All right, and this is our, our closing or our final question. I'll go to uh, Dr. Heggie first, and this is kind of like asking you to look into your crystal ball. And given the vast experience that you've had in this arena and the changes you've seen over your time, um, if you were to give a couple of predictions or what, what future advances that you foresee happening over the next decade, two, three, four decades um, in orthognathic surgery, what would they be? Yes, well, one can only speculate and uh, um, try and uh, think about what trends may continue. Um, our biomedical engineers and their planning are becoming all the more innovative and interactive. And I think uh, our surgery will be even more accurate and they will be even more supportive uh, with the ability to add to uh, uh, the fixation that they provide. And, and recently we did a, a craniofacial microsomia with a, a big titanium bulging implant on the side to give better facial symmetry. And uh, this, in the past, we would have used something like the polyethylene, the MedPore type of uh, implant, which uh, uh, has a greater propensity to get infected if you Put it in intraorally. So I think those sort of implants are going to be more innovative. Uh, while the 3D skeletal representations for virtual surgical planning will continue, uh, there's bound to be further software developments that will actually help us with the soft tissue predictions. Soft tissue predictions are still difficult. Uh, the ratio of hard tissue to soft tissue, you know, there have been plenty of work done decades ago and trying to get the ratios right, but you really can't rely on those, uh, certainly in the frontal view, and I think that's an area that will improve. Um, minimal invasive techniques keep popping up with uh, different instrumentation. Um, I've listened to some of these, uh, some of the advocates who have some good innovative ideas, whether this is going to reduce our morbidity to any degree or not, but I'm sure that will continue. Bone substitutes will dominate interpositional grafting. Uh, they're still, you know, looking for that uh, magic potion that we can mix up and put in there and it just turns into bone. But there are plenty of companies working on that and I'm sure that will move forward. Um, resorbable fixation is likely to make a uh, a return, perhaps with better chemistry. Um, 
around two, the year 2000, I did a, quite a number of those with the, the lactosorb, et cetera. But uh, as uh, Ed Ellis once said, uh, it's a great solution to a non-problem and we sort of uh, return to using our titanium fixation. But I'm sure resorbable fixation will reappear. It's certainly strong in the uh, craniofacial environment uh, for the uh, vault procedures. Drugs for reduction in pain and swelling, they'll obviously continue. And uh, our anaesthetic colleagues are also bit by bit uh, honing on their techniques. So there are a few of uh, thoughts that I have. All right. Thank you for that. Dr. Ben Sickles, the same question. Well, first of all, I'm glad you asked Dr. Hagee because uh, his answer was better than mine was going to be. Uh, I do agree with him about. You know, I um, I think bone substitutes are here now. I mean, the idea in the old days where we uh, took a hip graft on a patient to stabilize segments, I mean, that's just not indicated. A morbidity of a, of a donor site. Uh, and I think uh, some of the bone substitutes now... Uh, that we have the grafting of uh, so on sagittal splits. Uh, when you have that large advancement, if you really carefully look at those segments uh, a a, um, a year later, you find that there's sometimes little steps, or little palpable areas that patients can feel. I think we're going to be grafting them, but with not with a hip graft or anything of that nature, but with some sort of bone substitute. Um, I was going to answer that I'm not sure what the future trends will be. I mean, we as specialties, and, and when I say specialties, just OMS as well as orthodontics, our colleagues, we're evolving. We're always evolving. I mean, right, right now, uh, we talk about, uh, well, Invisalign uh, or Claraliners. Uh, they, you know, and I joke with my residents, there'll be a day that, one of my residents uh, will be operating with a younger resident uh, and say, you know, I remember when a time when uh, they used braces and the resident will say, what are braces? Uh, and uh, so, you know, as they adapt, we're going to have to adapt to them. And so uh, I uh, just say that, uh, and each of us will have to adapt to one another. I do agree with Dr. Hagee that we'll probably have better software uh, and, you know, I am just, you know, when I think about the inaccuracies, when we took impressions, there was a certain inaccuracy with the alginate as it uh, popped over those brackets. Uh, there was an inaccuracy when uh, we poured them up in stone and you had to mix it and, and, and shake it on a shake it on a vibrator and all that kind of stuff and whatnot. There's still an inaccuracy uh, with that. And then when we mounted our face bows and then when we made the acrylic uh, splints and we bang those, we put Vaseline on the teeth so it didn't stick on the teeth and we bang those those uh, splints together. And, um, you know, and, and every now and then you had that resident had a warped splint and sometimes we try to put them into a, uh, um, you know, a light curing thing to try and get, a you know, do that. Well, now it goes to a 3D printer. Those splints, I am just astonished and how 
when you put a splint on a maxilla, it goes clink. It it fits. In fact, I've only had one case where a splint didn't fit, and I I redid that maxilla three times, and I couldn't get uh, couldn't get it to 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 fit. And afterwards, I sat and talked to uh, the uh, patient. I said, I, I don't really understand. I couldn't get my the splint to fit. And she looks at me, and this is 24 hours later, and she goes, you know, I had my teeth cleaned uh, right before your procedure. And I told those those girls, my teeth hurt when you wired them, when they, they took the wires out and they put the wires back in and the teeth hurt when they, when they put the wires back in. And and then there, that explains it. The teeth moved. Uh, uh, you know, we 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 really and we probably will become more accurate. Uh, so, I guess that's uh, with the thing that I'm not sure exactly what's going to occur, but I know stuff will occur. Thank you. Well, thank you, uh, Doctor Van Sickles, Doctor Heggy. I appreciate both of your your time. Um, for this podcast. Uh, I enjoyed it. I hope you all enjoyed it. I've learned a lot. It's been nice kind of going back through history and, and also learning the advances that we have and what we have to look forward to. Um, so on behalf of IOMS, I appreciate you guys um, joining us uh, for this podcast. And I'm sure our listeners will will sincerely enjoy it. So thank you very much. Thank you again for joining us today. Visit us online at www.iaoms.org to become a member of our vibrant global community and to access a variety of education and timely resources. Stay up to date on IAOMS by following us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast while you're here so you're the first to know when new episodes are released. Until next time.